Welcome to Partnering Leadership, a top global leadership podcast for purpose-driven leaders with a growth mindset, seeking to learn from the leadership journey of change makers and business insights from leading global thinkers. For additional leadership insights and bonus content, visit us at partneringleadership.com. Now here's your host, Mahan Tavakoli. Rich Devaney, welcome to Partnering Leadership. I'm thrilled to have you in this conversation with me. Thank you, Mahan. Thanks so much for having me, and I'm excited to have the conversation as well. I love your book, The Attributes, Rich. I love the perspective you take and the humility you have with which you share a lot of fun stories that relate to all kinds of leaders in all organizations, even though your background and experience is with the Navy SEALs, and we're going to touch on that. I think it relates very well to leaders as they try to lead their organizations through uncertainty. But before we get to that, would love to know whereabouts you grew up and how your upbringing impacted the kind of person and leader you became. Well, I grew up in Connecticut and I have a twin brother, an identical twin brother. I have a little brother and an older sister. So the four of us and, you know, my my parents were wonderful and had a really nice childhood. But growing up, my dad, who was a private pilot, would take us flying and my twin brother and I loved it. And we decided very early on we wanted to be military jet pilots. And so that's what we set our sights on. It wasn't until maybe the early 90s, I think the first Gulf War, I was in high school and learned about special operations, learned specifically about the Navy SEALs and said, wow, this is something that I might want to try. And, you know, ended up at Purdue University in the NRTC program and decided ultimately that I didn't want to wonder if I could do it. So ended up in the SEAL teams and made it to training, made it through, which is great. The odds are low for that one. But as an officer was really in charge for my whole career, I was always in charge of something. And I always make a distinction between being in charge and being a leader because they're not the same thing. One is a noun and one is a verb. Anybody can be in charge. You can be designated that. But to be a leader, you have to be chosen. You have to be decided. Other people have to decide. To call yourself a leader is like calling yourself good looking or funny. All right. (laughs) You don't you don't get to decide that other people decide whether or not you are someone they want to follow. And it's done. So they do that based on how you behave. And that's a very important facet and factor. I think I learned it a little bit while I was in the military. I really was able to more articulate it after I got out of the military and I started working with some of the leadership institutes. And of course, my buddy Simon Sinek were in these spaces and I kind of learned a whole different optic of leadership. And I recognized that during my career, there were certain times where, yes, people thought of me as a leader. They thought of me that because they told me that and they told me how much they loved serving with me. And But there were other times where I was just the guy in charge and it was because I wasn't necessarily behaving in a way that endeared the folks to think of me as a leader. But really, it translates to so much of life because we're all, in some ways, influencing other people. And whenever we're in a position of influence, we are in a kind of de facto leader a little bit, at least. Certainly, if we're parents, my dad used to say parenting is the ultimate leadership position because you're taking a life from day one and molding it and shaping it. And that's, I think, what my parents did. The journey has been continuous. I think journeys are to mastery are. And so I keep on learning, I keep on understanding. And for me, it's fun to articulate things that I discover in the context of all of this. One of the interesting things I found, Rich, is early on, even in high school, your mom gave you a book, Key to Yourself, which is more about mindset than anything else. And you seem to embrace that early on. I did. The book was wonderful and a little bit metaphysical in terms of law of attraction and things like that. I'm not someone who... who sits and endeavors to purport the efficacy of metaphysics. But what I can tell you is that your mindset does matter. What you focus on does matter. 
And what you focus on, you move towards. And so when you decide to set a goal and you think optimistically about it, even if it's through incantations or positive affirmations, and you take action, you can't just wish the weeds away in your garden, you have to actually take action. But you add optimistic and positive thinking and positive speech and positive action to action, I've found great success in achieving goals that would otherwise seem to many people, maybe even to myself at first, unachievable. And so that book really influenced my thought process on how I approach life and how I approach challenge and approach goals. And how did that mindset impact you as you were going through BUDS training? 90 plus percent of people that are highly selected even before they choose to go in end up dropping out. So in your group, I think 168 people started, 38 graduated. You end up getting three, four hours of sleep in five days. How did the mindset part play a role in keeping you going through that training? Wow, what a great question. I think optimism will only get you so far. When you, and what SEAL training throws you into is an environment where there's very little space to be optimistic because you are just in the throes of misery. And again, I say this was an environment that the military places and a lot of human beings get thrown into these environments, whether it be through disease or poverty or just things that happen in life. And so the things I did and learned in SEAL training can be translated and, and can be applicable to everybody going through tough stuff. It's a matter of understanding, I believe, first of all, what qualities you bring to the table were the seeds of the whole attributes discussion, but also understanding how you can effectively think and maneuver through uncertainty, challenge and stress. And I think the guys who made it through, we were all able to focus on only that which we could control in the moment and not worry about anything else. And so whether you're running around with a heavy boat on your head or you're freezing in the surf zone or doing whatever insane thing they ask you to do in SEAL training, you don't focus on what's coming next. You don't focus on how long you have to go. You don't focus on how miserable it's going to be or how miserable it's been. You focus on the moment and focus on what you need to get done and you get that done. And that, in fact, has neurological backing because when we do that, when we goal set that way, even in micro doses, we in fact incur natural dopamine reward systems in our brain and our physiology. So when we set us even a micro goal, I'm going to just get through this next five minutes. Once you achieve that, if it's a meaningful goal, you get a dopamine reward. Your body literally says to yourself through dopamine, this is good, keep doing this. And that's how you begin to understand and learn how to step through these challenges. What I wonder, Rich, is while you can't talk about the specifics of the missions you went on, were there any missions where you had to run around with boats on your head or you had to lay on the sand in cold water? And if not, what did those things do to help you on the missions that you had to go on later on? Well, I can't talk about the missions. I can tell you definitively that none of them that I have to carry a boat on my head or freeze in the surf. Well, getting cold was certainly part of some of them, but certainly not running around with 300 about telephone poles. And this is where the attributes idea began to manifest itself in my head when I was in charge of a specialized selection training program. And I recognized that, in fact, what they were doing to us at SEAL training wasn't, in fact, training us to be Navy SEALs. It was, in fact, putting us into situations and environments to tease out the qualities, the attributes to see if we had the right attributes to be in the agency. They had what it took to do the job. Not if we knew how to do the job, if we could do the job. Know-how is skills, could or can is attributes. So what are those qualities required? And this is where we start to run into trouble as people and businesses who are trying to assess, either assess the current team they have 
or bring on board new players, new participants, because we get seduced by skills. And the reason is because skills are visible. Again, just to kind of level the bubble here, skills are not inherent to our nature. We're not born with the ability to throw a ball, ride a bike, or balance a spreadsheet. We learn how to do those things. We're trained. They also direct our behavior in known specific environments. This is how and when to balance a spreadsheet or ride a bike or drive a car. As such, because they're visible, they're very easy to assess, measure, and test, and score, in fact. We could put scores around, we could stats around, and we could see how well you could throw them on resumes. What skills don't tell us is how we're going to show up in environments of stress, challenge, uncertainty. When the environment becomes unknown, it's very difficult to apply a known skill to an unknown environment. Therefore, we begin to lean on these attributes, these qualities. Attributes are innate. We're all born with levels of resiliency or adaptability or situational awareness. Now, we certainly develop them over time and environment, but we can see levels of this stuff in small children. They also, attributes don't direct our behavior, they inform our behavior. For example, my son's levels of perseverance and resilience informed the way he showed up when he was learning the skill of riding a bike and falling off a dozen times doing so. So they inform how we show up. And then because they're hard to see and they're not necessarily visible, they're hard to assess, measure, and test. You can't sit across the table in an interview process, for example, and assess someone's levels of adaptability or patience or resilience. And so oftentimes during the team building process, we get seduced by skills. This is where you get the dream team concept. And I've heard all the time when I was getting out of the military or after I got out of the military, I was talking about high-performing teams. These people would come up to me and say, listen, Rich, we're, we're building these dream teams, best graphics designer, best marketing person, best salesperson, whatever it is. And they're doing great when things are going great. But as soon as things go sideways or the plan goes to heck, they turn toxic what's going on. And for me at that point, it, it was a very easy answer. I said, it's because you're building your team based on the wrong things. You're looking at skills. You're not looking at attributes. Attributes are what we need to look at if we want to really deconstruct performance. And before we go into understanding those attributes a little bit more, I want to underline the differentiation between attributes and skills. So you're not necessarily saying that attributes can't be developed. It's just that we inherently have some more than others. Initially, when I was Reading your book and listening to some of the conversations, I was wondering how this fits in with respect to conversations around a growth mindset in that I don't have these skills and capabilities or attributes yet. With that attitude, if you want it, you can develop it. I'm glad you brought that up. First bit of good news is that we all have all of the attributes because we're human. We have all of them. The difference in each one of us are the levels to which we have each. So I'll take adaptability as an example. And adaptability, if, if high adaptability is a 10 and low adaptability is a 1, I would probably be around at level 8 on adaptability. What does that mean? That means that when the situation and the environment changes around me outside of my control, it's fairly easy for me to go with the flow and, and roll with it. Someone else might be a level 3 on adaptability, which means when the same thing happens to them, it's difficult for them to do it. They're still adaptable because as human beings we are. It's just difficult. It takes effort. If we were to line up on a wall a bunch of dimmer switches and each dimmer switch represented an attribute, and I talk about 25 in the book, there are more than 25, of course, but each dimmer switch represented an attribute. All of our levels for each one would be different. Our lines would all look differently. And there's no judgment in that. It's how we show up. It'll be like judging our hair color. It's how we show up. Now, you can, if you're lower on an attribute, you can develop an attribute. You just can't do it the same way you do a skill. And, and a quick back of the envelope test for someone to determine whether or not it's an attribute or a skill, because they get conflated all the time, would be to ask yourself, can it be taught or can I teach it? If the answer is yes, that means it's probably a skill. If the answer is no, it means it's probably an attribute. So the example would be, Mahan, you say, Rich, 
I would like to learn how to shoot a pistol and hit a bullseye every time. Well, I could take you to the range and teach you how to do that within a couple hours. That is a skill. Or you could say, Rich, I want to learn how to be more patient or more adaptable. Well, I can't teach you that. Yeah, that's something that you have to do. So to develop an attribute takes three things. It takes self-motivation, it takes self-direction, and it takes the willingness for that person, that individual, to deliberately place themselves into environments of discomfort, because it's an attribute they're low on, to test and tease and develop that attribute. So if someone wants to develop their patience, they must then go place themselves, find environments and place themselves in environments that develop and test and tease their patients, whatever that might look like. It might look like, well, I'm going to go drive in traffic or I'm going to go stand at the longest line at the grocery store. Having kids is what I always joke about. That'll develop patients pretty quickly. But you have to find yourself so you can develop attributes. Here's the other bit of good news is that you don't have to have a lot of all of the attributes. In fact, that's impossible, A. But B, you don't need to. This is about figuring out our own engines, right? I always describe ourselves as automobiles. Some of us humans are Ferraris, some are SUVs, some are Jeeps. There's no judgment there because the Jeep can do things the Ferrari can't do and the Ferrari can do things the Jeep can't do. It's all about understanding, lifting your hood and understanding what your engine looks like. Because if you start understanding what your engine looks like, you start to say to yourself, wait a second, I am actually a Jeep that's been trying to run on a Ferrari track. That's why I've had so much trouble. Or conversely, a Ferrari trying to run on a Jeep track. So at that point, you can make a choice. You can say, well, actually, I want to be a Jeep that runs over Ferrari track. So now you know exactly which attributes you might need to work on to be a Jeep that better runs in a Ferrari track. Or you say, actually, no, I'm going to take my Jeep engine and go find a Jeep track. That's where I'll be happiest. So you don't have to have a lot of every attribute. It depends on what goals you have. depends on what niche you're in. I always joke that the stand-up comic doesn't necessarily need a lot of empathy. In fact, too much empathy can be detrimental to a stand-up comic because how are you supposed to find the funny at a funeral if you have too much empathy? So it's really about understanding what you want to do in life, what your contexts are, and then what that attribute list looks like. And then in business and in teams, it's important to understand what attribute list is required for that specific role or responsibility. The list of attributes that make up a great Navy SEAL are, is going to look different than the list of attributes that make up a great salesperson or a great teacher or a great surgeon. So people in business and teams, you have to understand and do the diligence on saying, what are the attributes that actually make sense in this environment and then look for and select for those. You have a good list and survey people can fill out on the attributes.com and the book site where they can find out their own attributes. When leaders are looking first in the hiring process to determine attributes, you already alluded to the fact that you can't sit across the table from people and determine their attributes. Are there psychometric profiles that can be done? Or are there other processes that need to be instituted in the hiring process to make sure you have people with the right attributes for the role you're hiring? There are tons of personality assessments and things like that you can get. I have done most of them because I find them vastly interesting. I wouldn't be able to speak to the ability of any of them to dive deeply into attributes. And the assessment you can take on our site gives you a score as to where you might fall on this stuff. So that could help. The best and most pure way to look for attributes is inside of environments. They're experientially, because it's the environments of challenge of certainty and stress that will tease these things out. And so this is a little bit tougher. It makes the interview process a little bit more complex because you have to then ask yourself, how can I throw some uncertainty, challenge and stress into this hiring process so I can actually see these attributes? So again, number one, understand the attributes you're looking for because you have to design the environment to see those attributes. But a good example I, I often use is one of a sales guy or gal 
if you and I, for example, wanted to hire someone who was great at sales, you and I could tell this person on Friday, say, come in Tuesday morning. And when you come in, uh, we want you to sell this pencil. We all get to Tuesday morning. This person comes in and we sit down and say, give us the sales pitch. And the person gives us a great sales pitch that is highly convincing, very professional. We're like, okay, that sounds fantastic. The problem is you and I would not have learned much about that person. All we would have learned is that person knows how to prepare their pitch and give their sales pitch for that pencil. So what we might do instead is again on Friday, say, come in Tuesday, sell us this pencil. When we get there Tuesday morning, though, instead of pencil, we say, hey, plans have changed. You're not going to sell us this pencil. You're going to sell us this coffee cup. And oh, by the way, there's no audio visual. So you have to just go off the cuff. Now, at that point, what you and I would have to do very deliberately is divorce ourselves from skills assessment, because what we're about to see is probably going to be ugly. But now we're not looking at skills anymore. We're looking at attributes. So let's really look how this person behaves. Is the person funny? Is the person adaptable? Is the person thinking on the fly, thinking quickly? Is the person resilient from what you just said? Or is the person kicking the dirt, blaming, and they're kind of going down a spiral, right? Now we're starting to tease out after because you've just thrown some uncertainty. So the idea is to add into any hiring process some of this uncertainty, challenge, and stress. And again, it doesn't have to be Machiavellian and it needs to be contextual. So in other words, in SEAL training, you go and you sit in the surf zone for hours freezing. For me to take a group of prospective accountants into the surf zone and freeze them wouldn't tell me a lot about how they're going to be at accounting. So the environments have to be contextual to what you're looking for. But that is the key environment is the most pure way to look for these things. And therefore, it takes a lot more effort to be able to determine what the right attributes are for the role and whether the person has those attributes but that sets the person up for success within that team. As you're looking at teams, how do you make sure the interplay of the attributes lead well to the organization or team's goals and results? The attributes required for each team, depending on the role of that team, the list is going to be specific. But then there are some decidedly specific attributes that relate to human relations. So in the book, I, I outline five different categories. And And the categories are grit. What are the attributes that make up grit? What are the attributes that make up mental acuity? What are the attributes that make up drive? And then what are the attributes that make up leadership and team ability? So the first three categories, grit, mental acuity, and drive, those are all individually focused. It kind of talks about individual performance inside of an environment. And when we start talking about leadership and we start talking about team ability, those are the attributes that speak to our performance with other human beings. Just like I said, you can't call yourself a leader. It's done on behaviors. These behaviors, these leadership attributes, are those, in fact, those things that cause behaviors that then cause other people to say, that's someone who I want to follow. And those leadership attributes are empathy, selflessness, decisiveness, accountability, and authenticity. Those are behaviors, those are attributes that speak to people's ability to look at someone like a leader. And we know this because we've asked questions around the world to thousands of people, what do great leaders do? What are those behaviors? And we get the same list every time. And those five are always on the list. But then you have the team ability attributes. What are those attributes that speak to our ability to relate and work with other human beings? And those are integrity. And again, integrity can be defined as do the right thing. We have to remember that integrity is subjective. People often make that mistake. They think integrity is not subjective. They think it's objective, and that's not the case. Do the right thing means something different for a SEAL platoon than it might mean for a group of ISIS folks or a Cub Scout troop. So do the right thing is defined by the team, hopefully defined by the leadership, and then expressed and behaved that way. But it has to be understood. So do the right thing in the context of the team. Conscientiousness, which is a combination of being diligent, reliable, and working hard. 
Humility, which is kind of a no-brainer because arrogance on a team is disastrous. Humility is not like meekness. It's humility. Hey, I even if I am an expert, I still have something to learn and I can learn from others and I need my teammates. That's humility on a team. And then humor, which is one of the most important parts, which is really this idea. Are we able to laugh when times are tough? Can we laugh? Because laughter is such a powerful act of human behavior. And again, much like sneezing, it's involuntary, right? And when we laugh, we get juiced with two neurotransmitters and one hormone. So dopamine, which is a neurotransmitter, which I've talked about, and we all kind of know a lot about the root of all addiction, really. It's a chemical that says, keep doing this. This is good. So all the addictive behaviors, they, they help create dopamine. The chemical dopamine is what makes us keep doing them. So we get dopamine when we laugh. We get endorphins, which is human body's opiate to mask pain. Again, we were designed by nature as endurance creatures, and we had to go long times and distances to find food, to find shelter, to find companionship. And so our body's designed to go the long haul, and endorphins flood our bodies to help match that pain. Also in the modern context known as runner's high. So we get dopamine, we get endorphins, and then we get oxytocin, which oxytocin is a hormone. Neurotransmitters, they're fast in, fast out. That's how they operate, kind of the carbon at the end of a match, right? Hormones are the longer, slower in, they last longer, they're slower out. Oxytocin is, it's a hormone, but it acts a little bit faster than some of the other hormones. But oxytocin known as the trust, the love chemical, the love hormone. And you get bursts of oxytocin. You got oxytocin generation when you have physical touch with other human beings or acts of kindness or generosity. Now, what's cool about oxytocin is you also get bursts of oxytocin even when you witness acts of kindness and generosity. So when we see someone else do something kind, when we see someone else loving. That's why we all love the coming home videos of soldiers or pets or things like that. We just love it. That's all oxytocin. Long story short, you get all three of those when you laugh. When we laugh, we get all three of those, whether we like it or not. <laughs> and that is a powerful chemical cocktail that allows us to keep going. It's one of the reasons why humor is one of the most desired qualities for humans in finding a mate. Because if someone can make us laugh, it means, oh my gosh, this person... They have my back. They help me keep going. And it's feelings. It's not just a knowledge. It's not a brain thing. It's like I actually feel it. Humor is the last one and really important. So I always say honor your class clowns. A team always has to have a couple. You have to have those people who make us laugh. And then, of course, the humor attribute allows you to laugh. You don't have to be the class clown. You just have to be able to laugh, but certainly have a couple class clowns on your team. Yeah, actually tell a story, Rich, about when you were going through training of laughter that reminded me of a high-functioning senior team I was on and how the individual that made us laugh, we loved them, but I didn't understand until your story why that by itself helped our team become a more effective team. I've never experienced a high-performing team that hasn't had some class clowns, hasn't been able to laugh when times are down. It just happens. And the story I share is during SEAL training, you do something called surf torture, where they walk you out into the surf zone, you have to lay down, the waves crash over you, and then they recede and they crash over you. It's the coldest thing you've ever experienced because the wind hits you and everything. And they spend, you're out there for what seems like hours, but inevitably at some point, the instructors will drive a van onto the beach and the guy will get out with a megaphone and say, hey, for anybody who quits right now, I have hot chocolate, I have blankets, and I have donuts in the van. If you quit right now, you can have that. And I was in the surf zone when the instructor did that. And I remember my guy to my right yelling immediately at the top of his lungs. He said, hey, do you have any chocolate glazed donuts? Because if you don't have any chocolate glazed, I'm not quitting. <laughs> and so I remember la bursting out in laughter. He laughed. I remember feeling at that time, oh, we're going to be okay. But I looked to my left and the guy to my left was stone-faced. He hadn't even heard the joke. 
he was looks lost in Spain. And I said to myself, mm, this guy's not going to make it. And sure enough, within a minute, he was quitting. What happened there? I mean, my buddy made that joke, freezing in the surf zone. My buddy made that joke. I was immediately flooded with dopamine. This is good. Keep doing it. I was immediately flooded with endorphins. This is fine. It doesn't feel that bad. And then I was immediately flooded with oxytocin. We're in this together. And that's how powerful it can be. I mean, then people ask me if I miss the SEAL teams. And I say, I, I don't miss because I think miss usually it implies a longing or a wishing you could go back. And I know I could never go back. You age out of that stuff. What I look back the most fondly on are those times where we're laughing. I mean, environments around us that were just miserable and we were laughing until we were crying. That's the type of stuff that was really priceless. And that's one of the things that I wonder and I read a lot about, Rich. Organizations spend a lot of effort and time on trying to build stronger teams where people can trust each other, rely on each other. The SEALs, your 20 plus years experience, including the time you spent, in essence, launching the Mind Lab there, do a fantastic job with building that teamwork and team trust. Some of it might be function of the environment and some of the hostilities that people have to deal with. But what else goes into it that business leaders can learn from in trying to create teams of people that work well together, trust each other, and are effective? Well, I think the advantage the military has, it's not just the SEAL teams, but the military has, is the training is centered around shared experience. And in many cases, shared misery, which just enhances everything. Experience is the key. I mean, that, that's why teams that can work together and operate together and move together and just experience each other are going to build trust much more rapidly than the teams that don't. Or sometimes teams that are just in a business environment. It's why the you know, offsites can be very powerful if designed correctly, because some offsites are designed solely to speak to certain people with certain attributes, right? <laughs> those offsites that are all about competition, you're going to sidebar all those people who are not competitive. They're going to hate it. But offsites that are designed well can actually help express these attributes and people can bond in ways. But again, it doesn't have to be outside of the workplace. So if teams go around and they, they show each other that they care about each other just by listening, by talking, by engaging with each other, spending time. You know, a good friend of mine always says time is the currency of leadership because time, it's a commodity we all have the same amount of. And when we give it away, we can't get it back. And so when we give someone our time, we are showing them that we care about them and they are feeling like we care about them. These actions, behaviors, trust is also just like leadership. Trust is built on behaviors, things that we do. I always say you can't make anybody trust you. All you can do is behave in a way that allows them to make a decision to trust you. And those behaviors are attributes based. And oftentimes the same behaviors that cause great leadership too. I mean, accountability, consistency, competence, doing the right thing, character, all these things that allow someone to say, okay, I trust this person. We just behave more, behave in a way that shows people you care about them and you will build trust. So Rich, now that you spend most of your time guiding leaders and organizations, and we have to deal with a virtual and at best hybrid environment, how can leaders and teams nurture that kind of trust and that bonding that, as you mentioned, happens more through shared in-person experiences. It does, but you can do it virtually. It's going to take more time and effort because, again, time is the ultimate thing. You want to spend the time with the people on your team. And it might mean you have to do one-on-ones once in a while. It might mean when you do a one-on-one, -on -one, it's not about let's talk about work. Hey, let's just have lunch. I've had people who, who literally do Zoom lunches where they just have lunch and they just talk and they chat and they visit and they talk about things that are not necessarily work-related. Whenever a leader 
And I think most people in, in the audience can probably think of a time where this has happened. Hopefully they can, where one of their leaders at some point said, hey, tell me about your family. Tell me about a hobby. And when they asked that, they actually really listened to the answer. And they weren't just asking, they listened. Every single one of us felt cared for. You just automatically do. And if you are able to really take an interest, take a vested interest in another human being or the human beings on your team, you need to take time to do that. You can do that virtually. You can have those conversations. You can spend that time so that when you actually do meet in person, that meeting will be far more rich because you will have created a bond before. People used to do this all the time. People who loved each other used to just send letters, right? And I say this with experience because I met my wife where I was still stationed in Hawaii. She was in Hawaii. I met my wife and it was five days before I actually left the island to move to Virginia, which is pretty much as far as you can get in the United States from each other, right? The first two and a half months of our relationship were all letters we were sending each other. And we were on the phone sometimes too, but we sent each other letters and we developed a love for each other just through that first. So when we got to see each other two months later, the love was already there. It can be done. It just takes more effort. It does take conscious effort. And a lot of what you talk about resonates very well with me. Another one of the concepts that I think would make a beautiful book too, you talk about dynamic subordination, Rich. What is dynamic subordination? Dynamic subordination is quite literally the, the metabolization of a trusted team. Because what happens is in a dynamic subordination environment, unlike a typical pyramid hierarchical environment or whatever we usually get in businesses, what happens is every team member understands that challenge or problems can come from any angle at any moment. And when one does, the person who is closest to the problem and the most capable immediately steps up and takes lead and everybody follows. It's a dynamic swap between leader and follower. I also call it alpha swapping. But this is an environment where trust allows every member to say that person's got it. I have that person's back. And then the environment might change and someone else is now, you know, the leader at the moment. And I say this, you know, I was an officer in the Navy and an officer in charge of SEAL platoons and SEAL troops. And so I was always the guy in charge. But that didn't mean I was always the guy. Everybody was always supporting me. More often, I was supporting maybe the snipers in the moment or I supported the lead jumper or supporting the assaulter, right? We were following that person and we were in support of that person. And it just swaps depending on environment. That's, in fact, a dynamic subordination environment. A way we can conceptualize this a little bit more viscerally than maybe a SEAL example would be just a, a commercial airliner. Everybody would agree that the captain of the commercial airliner is in charge. That person is in charge. There's no debate. However, if that airplane is taxing out to takeoff and suddenly that captain gets a call from the maintenance guy and the maintenance guy says, hey, I found something wrong with the airplane. I need you to turn around. Well, no captain worth their wings is going to ignore that. They're immediately going to subordinate to that maintenance guy and turn the plane around and go back to the gate and figure it out. Maybe during that time frame, they realize, well, we have to deplane the plane because we have to get this thing fixed. Well, captain doesn't take charge of that either. The captain immediately subordinates to the flight attendant who steps up, takes the lead and gets the people off the plane. So this is dynamic subordination in action. It's the purest manifestation of a trusted team and a high performance team. And I think in an uncertain environment and a greater uncertainty that we live in, Rich, organizations need to embrace more of that dynamic subordination that you talk about. You also mentioned things that reminded me of a conversation I had with Bob Johansson. He's with the Institute for the Future, trains all three-star U.S. generals. And he says, be clear on direction, be clear where you're going, very flexible to get there. Clarity, but not certainty. And you also mention examples of the importance of that kind of thinking, living in an uncertain environment, 
part of what you say with respect to SEALs is the SEALs are masters of uncertainty. I believe businesses and business leaders need to be masters of uncertainty too. If 2020 taught us nothing, which it taught us a lot, we could say it taught us that the world is uncertain. We do not know. And even if we predict, that's fine, but we have to be able to flex and adapt. And the only way to be able to do that rapidly is to create an environment of trust in your team so that you can dynamically subordinate and you can adapt and flex. The lessons of life teach us this all the time. We just never apply it to the big picture. You know, kind of congruent to what you had just said, I usually say in the context of any goal, be resolute in the outcome, but be flexible in the approach. The rock climber can teach us a lot about this. Like the rock climber looks at the face of the rock and that on the ground looks at it and maps out a just a general path that he or she might take and then understands that the only way to begin to figure out is actually start climbing. But while they're climbing, they recognize and it's inevitable that they're going to find a place where they thought was the next best pathway is not in fact the next best pathway. So they have to look for the next best handheld or foothold. And that might be like down to the right, like it might be down and over, which means they may have to move down and away from the top so that they'd get a better optic or get a better position so they can move up, which is good. I mean, that, that tells us even in the context of any goal, sometimes it might feel like we're moving away and down and away from our goal, but it's only in the context of getting a better handhold or foothold so that we can actually make the rest of the summit. So you have to be flexible in the results. The environment around us that we cannot control will always throw in uncertainty, throw in challenge, throw in things that we have to adapt to. And so we just have to understand that's life. I love the analogy you give, control your three-foot environment. Yeah, I mean, controlling your three-foot world, which is a SEAL thing, is a basic idea of saying in an environment of complexity, uncertainty, and so in the military, they call it VUCA, which is V-U-C-A, volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous. In a VUCA environment, it's really about asking yourself the question, in this moment, out of all this uncertainty, what can I actually control? And then you answer that question, you say, okay, what am I going to focus on? I'm going to focus on what I can control. And then you move to that. And then by moving to that, you generate a dopamine reward because our neurology is designed to reward us for that. And you generate a different optic of the problem. So you can ask the question again, do I understand what can I control? And then you move to that. It's really the neurological manifestation of eating the elephant one bite at a time. You're not focusing on the big picture. You're focusing on what you can control in the moment, moving, moving, moving. And slowly you make your way through challenge and certain stress by just focusing in that three foot space. And that does help us control our anxiety a lot more too. In this environment, more and more leaders are feeling more anxious and are having difficulty without clarity of where things are headed. Some of the leaders I talked to, initially they were really optimistic when the vaccine rollout came. They were thinking we're going back to a certain level of normal. And then over the past couple of months, I've seen more and more leaders get depressed with the fact and understanding that, no, there is no clear normalcy and they're going to have to continue adjusting to this. You also address resilience versus anti-fragility, Rich. This is an opportunity for anti-fragility. So how can we as individuals and as leaders of teams use the opportunity to become more anti-fragile? Absolutely. Well, so just to define the terms, resilience is I get knocked off baseline and I get back to baseline. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's survival. We, we actually need to be resilient. Whereas anti-fragility is when I get knocked off baseline, when I come back, I've grown stronger because of it. A muscle is anti-fragile. When you rip the muscle, when you're lifting weights, 
if you give it the proper recovery, it grows bigger. The key is in recovery. And that's the problem. That's the problem most of us fall into is we don't allow ourselves to appropriately recover. To recover to a point of resiliency takes a certain amount of time. And to recover to a point of anti-fragility takes even more time. We have to find and capitalize on recovery. Now, one of the primary ways that human beings recover and recover deeply is with sleep. In fact, it's the best recovery method out of any of them because it's by nature's design. We are hearing a lot in today's fitness world and even performance world about the importance of good, solid, effective sleep. And that is sleep science is a, is a real thing. And getting proper sleep is absolutely essential. But there are other ways we can recover. I mean, if we think about our physiology as human beings, we have a nervous system which goes into sympathetic or parasympathetic. Sympathetic can be known as a kind of our action nervous system or action states. And it's generating a series of chemicals when we're in sympathetic system, especially if we're in stress, generating cortisol, which is a little bit more destructive to our system. Um, parasympathetic is designed to recover us. So it's generating things like DHEA, which are the building block of testosterone and, and estrogen. So in parasympathetic, when we're shifted in parasympathetic, our emotions, our keys are clues to what system we're in. And so emotions such as joy, calm, peace, exuberance, love, those are all parasympathetic expressed emotions, which means when we're experiencing those and feeling those, we're actually generating DHEA. We are in recovery, which means it gives us a good clue as to what we can do to recover. So in other words, situations that generate those feelings put us into recovery. So whatever that is for you, it doesn't have to be sleep. I mean, it might be going to church. It might be meditating. For me, it's going for a run in the woods on my own without any headphones and no clock. I'm just in nature. Whatever that might be, find those activities that produce those emotions. You will be in recovery. And then definitely get good sleep. It is all important. And I was thinking about you actually on my Sunday morning runs, which serve the same purpose for me, Rich, because it does for me, let my mind relax and energizes me for at least the first couple of days of the week before I need to go for another run. You've got a lot of great insights in the attributes with respect to understanding attributes versus skills but also a lot of what business leaders can implement, not only with respect to hiring team members, but with respect to how to get their team members to work more effectively with each other and to build on their strengths. As you mentioned with the example of the cars, it's not that one is better than the other, it's which one is suited for what purpose. In addition to your own book, Rich, are there any leadership resources, good books you have read recently that you find yourself recommending for others to read? I'm friends with Simon. I think Simon Sinek's books are great. I think he has some great leadership stuff. Bob Chapman's company, Everybody Matters, is a great book about truly human leadership that people can access and look into. I would say, though, that I also try to read things that are a little bit off the leadership topic because I think sometimes we find ourselves going down lanes and it almost vectors us into one node of thinking. And so books like Anti-Fragile, by Nassim Tlaib. I love all of this stuff. You know, Black Swan, Antifred. These have nothing to do with leadership, but you can learn about concepts that end up relating to leadership and performance. I love Harari stuff because <laughs> I think that's just to, to think about and understand the human species to that extent, the way he does. My other friend, Dan Coyle, has some great books, Talent Code, Culture Code. Stephen Kotler, another friend, has some great books about flow. My recommendation is to really grab anything you can because creativity comes from, and this is also neurologically proven, creativity happens when two neural connections that are otherwise not associated actually associate. How does that, that manifests physically by 
one idea that has nothing to do with another idea, suddenly finding connections between the two. All right. And the way we can encourage that is to learn about a bunch of different stuff. So you could take a course on basket weaving and suddenly say, oh, wait a second, this concept of basket weaving, I can see how it relates to the seal operation. <laughs> I mean, which is like, what the hell? Right. How does that work? Well, it works. That's creativity in action. So keeping open-minded and learning and being diverse in your thoughts, being empathetic. I'm, I'm talking a lot more about just empathy nowadays, just because we need more of it in our planet and our country. Deliberately finding and practicing empathy. I always say you don't have to agree with someone to be empathetic with someone. How can I place myself in that person's shoes for a moment to feel that perspective? Those are ways that we fire up our creative neural networks really well. Those are outstanding recommendations. I, whether it's Nassim Taleb or Yuval Harari, love their writing ads, frameworks, and different kind of thinking. So I see the world differently. Love those recommendations. You also mentioned empathy repeatedly, Rich. And one of the things in reading your book and listening to a lot of your interviews, I love that you have a lot of empathy and you showed a lot of empathy while serving too. So I was wondering, how were you able to maintain empathy or appropriate level of empathy? Because there has to be a balance. With too much empathy, you wouldn't have been able to carry out your missions. With too little empathy, you would have become a robot. How were you able to balance empathy then? And how do you have us think about empathy and having the right level and amount of empathy now? Yes. Great question. Well, I think as a human being, I was always a little bit lower on the empathy scale, which actually served well in the job I was in. And so for me, it was a deliberate act to induce empathy that I wanted to do that deliberately. But again, as a Navy SEAL, you need empathy because you, you can't be a robot. You have to have too much is just going to you won't be able to do the job. So in that case, I was pretty well predisposed. But then as I got out of the military, I recognized that my lower levels of empathy didn't serve me well, as well as they could. I've endeavored since then to up my empathy game. My wife is a great example. She's one of the most empathetic people I've ever met. So I can see how that's a powerful thing. But upping my empathy game, because in the context of what I'm doing now, it matters. This is really important because as a leader, you have to balance it too. If you're too empathetic as a leader, then you're going to find yourself defaulting to because it usually often has to do with either an individual or small group. And so by really feeling what one small group is feeling, you're going to isolate yourself or isolate a different group. So you can't be too empathetic, but you also don't want to be not empathetic. As a leader, I always think about empathy as if it's on a dimmer switch and you have to dial it up and dial it down depending on the situation you're in. And I think that's what the great leaders are able to do. They're, they're able to appropriately dial their empathy into the situation where it's most appropriate in the moment. Because if you need a lot, you dial it in and you have a lot. If you need to back it up and say, hey, I have to make a decision based on the greater good. I can't really worry about what too many people feel. There it is. I try to approach empathy as a dimmer switch. And I think that's probably the best recipe for success for leaders. It is a great recipe. And your wife has helped you turn that dimmer switch up a lot. Kudos to her. That's wonderful. But again, there are lots of stories about even while you were serving and the great empathy that you had. And that's really important to keep in mind. Rich, how can the audience find out about you, connect with you, in addition to the links that we put in show notes? 
The best way, the easiest way is the website, theattributes.com, because there you can find me, you can find the book, you can find the assessment tool, which is free. People can take that. And if you want to get in contact with us for talks or consulting, you can go right there to do it. Obviously, the book can be found on any of the places books are sold, Amazon or otherwise. Also on that website, you'll find my Instagram handle as well as LinkedIn. So Rich on Instagram and on LinkedIn as well. So those are all different ways. It's an outstanding book, The Attributes, 25 Hidden Drivers of Optimal Performance. And I really appreciate you taking the time, sharing some of the thoughts with respect to the attributes, which I believe can help leaders and organizations both recruit better and also help their teams become more effective. And really appreciate, in addition to your service, the service you're continuing to give to leaders of organizations to become both more empathetic and also be able to lead their organizations more effectively. Thank you so much for joining me in this conversation, Rich Devini. Thank you, Mahan. I appreciate being here. Thanks so much for having me. It's been an honor. You have been listening to Partnering Leadership with your host, Mahan Tavakoli. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a rating and review of the podcast on your favorite podcasting app and forward the conversation to a friend or colleague so you can help more people discover their purpose, grow professionally with meaning, and have a greater impact. For additional leadership insights and bonus content, visit us at partneringleadership.com.